this last Christmas, um, you know, with our three girls in the house, they're all getting a little bit older. And uh, this year kind of felt like one of those years for me as a dad where it almost seemed like half of the things that they got for Christmas, whether it was from us or from family, relatives, it felt like almost half the things they opened up, I was also really excited about as they opened them up. I mean, you know, they definitely got all their requisite, you know, uh, outfits and clothes and things like that. And I get excited to see them wearing those things. But a lot of their toys, I'm really excited about personally. And uh, like they, for somehow they got into playing Legos a few years ago. So like every Lego set they get, you know, in a choir, I'm like, that's awesome. You know, I can't wait to build that with you. But one thing that Christina and I got them this year is we got them this kind of build your own roller coaster. I like like those marble towers and mazes and roller coasters and stuff. And this company called Connects, they make these roller coasters that we don't ha- we've never had one before, but I've always kind of spied them out on Amazon and, you know, and stuff. And so I'm like, okay, I, I want to get one of those for them. And they make some that are, you know, pretty small and everything. And, and I, in my heart, I was like, no, if we're going to get them one, I want to get them a huge one. So we got them this really big roller coaster. It's like this big, you know, all put together and everything. And they were excited. You know, we gave it to them as a group gift, you know, so they were all excited about it and everything. And a couple days after Christmas, because uh, I gave them the speech, like, you know, you are not going to be able to build this without me and all my infinite wisdom, <laughs> and I'll help you, you know, and stuff like that. So they were kind of just waiting and holding off for the moment that we'd all have time together to build it. And my second daughter, Violet, she's kind of the one that's the most interested, I think, in like the building process and everything. Lauren and June just kind of came by every once in a while, like, how's it going with our roller coaster? Can we play with it yet? You know, but Violet wanted to build it. And so she comes to me and she says, dad, is now a good time? Can we build the roller coaster? So we had like an hour and a half or so free. And in my mind, I thought, yeah, that's perfect. We got time. We're going to build this roller coaster. Well, so we unpackage it. And I started realizing there are like 95 pages of instructions for this thing. I told Christina, I'm like, I feel like I'm building a piece of Ikea furniture right now, you know. And so it didn't take, you know, an hour and a half. It took probably six hours or so to put this thing together over the course of a few days. But we got it all built, and it's really fun. It glows in the dark. It's exciting, all that. I think that in a lot of ways... That's the way the gospel works for so many of us. We get Jesus. We give our lives to Christ. We become born again. And it's like, awesome. This is amazing. I'm thankful. But there's a process of unpacking and what Paul's going to do in the book of Romans, building out the case for what the gospel actually is so that we can then re Uh, realize these truths and live them out uh, every single day. Notice some of the things that are said about Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, listen to this, the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew says it in a different way. Matthew 4, verse 23. It says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So a different 
emphasis, but the same thing, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then doubling back to Mark's gospel, he actually wrote the first verse of his gospel and said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right there we have the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus came living it out and he came teaching it and explaining it and imploring people to believe in the message of the gospel. But if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is an explanation of the life of Jesus, which is the gospel, Jesus's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, if that's the life of the gospel, then what Paul the apostle is going to do is say, that's what Jesus did. Now let me show you what it means. That's what the book of Romans is all about for you uh, and for me. So in my mind, there's five sections to this book that we're going to study over the course probably of this next uh, year. The first section, we're going to look at our need for the gospel message, our need for the gospel message. Really, that's Romans for the most part, one, two, and three. We're going to see the lostness of mankind, the brokenness of mankind. Why did Jesus even have to come and live this life and die on the cross? We're going to see that in Romans one through three. Then we're going to see at the end of chapter three, all the way through chapter five, God's gospel provision for you and for me. How do we access it? What does God immediately do to us in the process of accessing it by uh, faith? What position is now ours in Jesus? And then in chapter 6, 7, and 8, we're really going to slow down when we get to that portion because, I mean, it's all holy ground, but I think we would say this is most holy ground when we get to Romans 6 through 8 because Paul is going to explain to us the beautiful scope of the gospel at that point. In other words, so many of us think that the gospel is I believe in this and I am saved. And the rest of the Bible, the rest of the New Testament is not the gospel message, but is just sort of teaching on how I'm supposed to live. But the scope of the gospel goes all the way into not just positionally saving me, but sanctifying me and glorifying me and changing me and transforming me so much so that by the time we get to the end of Romans chapter 8, we'll discover the beautiful truth with Paul that if God is for us, who can be against us, that I am a super conqueror or an overcomer, more than a conqueror, in and because of Christ Jesus. So our, hopefully by the time we get to the end of that, our position in Christ will be so strong and secure within our minds and within our hearts. Not that, not that it isn't secure, it is, but we'll now know about it a little bit more uh, as we go through God's word. And then Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul will deal with Israel. Where the question about them receiving the Lord and being stumbled over the gospel message, he'll address it. And so we'll look at the hope even of those who, when they stumble over the gospel, there still is the hope that they will they will one day receive that glorious message. And then chapter 12 through the end of the book, 16, we're going to see the gospel applied or application into our own lives and interactions and people that we talk with every single day. What does this gospel-saturated community actually uh, look like? So that's kind of, in my mind at least, the outline for the book of Romans and where we're going to go. But where do we start? Well, we start where we always start, the first verse of the first book. So let's get into it. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, Paul, a servant 
of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, in ancient times, when they wrote letters, they would put the name of the sender first. And so Paul puts his own name down there. Some of you are new to the Lord. You don't know about Paul. You're like, everybody's always talking about this guy named Paul. Is he in the lobby? Where can I meet him? Okay, Paul lived a couple thousand years ago. He was one of Jesus' apostles. It means that Jesus sent him out into the world to be a proclaimer, to write doctrine, to write scripture, and he did that. He wrote 13 New Testament epistles or letters, and that's what we're studying one of them right now, which is probably a sixth or seventh letter, somewhere around there, the book of Romans that he wrote probably from the city of Corinth. So he writes this letter, but that's a little bit about who Paul is. Paul was not one of the guys that you would see sitting at... uh, the Last Supper, if you've seen any artwork about that, you wouldn't see Paul there. Paul was one, he described himself as being born out of due season. So a few years after Jesus went back into heaven, Paul was actually persecuting the church because he was a Pharisee, a religious leader who did not like the church, did not like the message that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, was persecuting the church. And in Acts 9, there's a record, along with a couple other chapters in Acts, describing how he was converted or changed or born again. A great light shone from heaven when he was on his way to persecute the church in a city called Damascus. And as he fell to the ground, he heard a voice that said, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And from that point forward, Paul became a changed and a transformed man. Now, Paul did incredible things. His life was incredibly fruitful. In fact, I think in one sense, we will say his life is still fruitful Because as we're studying the words that he wrote, of course, that we attribute to the Holy Spirit, but he's the human instrument, we would say, you're still bearing fruit in my life, Paul. The teaching that you gave a couple thousand years later, we're still feeding off it. We're still growing from it. How did Paul bear such incredible fruit? Clearly, the credit all goes to God. That's what Paul would say if he was here. It's all God's uh, fault that I bore this kind of fruit. It's God's responsibility. It's, It's God. It's all God. But if we look at his attitude about himself, I think he had two attitudes that were very helpful in him bearing such fruit. Notice number one, he called himself a servant of Christ Jesus. Did you see that there? A servant of Christ Jesus. That is the Greek word actually, doulos, which means slave. He was a slave in his mind of Christ Jesus. We like to scrub it up a little bit and clean it up in our own English language. Slave sounds a little too harsh, so we like to say he was a servant. But he actually thought of himself like a slave, a slave of Jesus. I belong to Jesus. And I've found, at least in my life, the more that I have an attitude that I belong to Jesus. Because I've got to tell you, it's pretty progressive. There are moments I say, I belong to Jesus. I'm a slave of Jesus. And then he says, well, can you do this for me? And I'm like, that's not really a slave attitude, right? So it kind of grows over time within my heart. And the more that I sense that I'm a slave of Christ, a servant of Christ, I find the more effective I can be. So Paul saw himself that way. But also, secondly, notice there in verse 1, called to be an apostle. Called to be an apostle. Paul had a firm sense of the calling that Jesus had placed upon his life. Now, I don't believe that any of us would actually, in the here and now, have a calling to be an apostle in the same way that Peter or James or John or Paul was called to be an apostle. I think some people have 
powerful gift of going out into the world as missionaries and being sent out, but not in the sense like these guys were, where they're actually writing Scripture. Jesus prayed for us in John 17 that we, the future church, would be connected to Paul and the other apostles who were writing Scripture. So we want to connect ourselves to the truths that they communicated under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. However, we want to have a calling from the Lord, don't we? And I think one of the things that's so helpful to us is to have that sense, Lord, here's something that you have called me to do, something that you've called me to be. And one thing that maybe isn't as apparent to many of us, just looking at the life of Paul, because we read the book of Acts, and it covers about 30 years of early history in the early church, but we often aren't conscious of that when we read it. So we read it as if it just event after event after event after event after event. But actually, when you read of the life of Paul the Apostle and you patch it together, you know what actually appears? That he gave his life to the Lord and about 14 years later or 13 years later was sent out on his first missionary journey. And what he did in between the moment of his conversion and being sent out was that he spent a lot of time alone with Jesus, being prepared and being transformed. That's one way that you know the call of God on a person's life is firm. So many times we say, I'm called. But then if we don't get an opportunity a month within a month from feeling called, we give up. But Paul was prepared, and he went through a long season of preparation before the Lord. So he's called. Now at this point, Paul does something really interesting in this letter, and I want to explain it to you. Is in most of his letters, he gives a greeting. He says, Paul, here's who I am. I'm an apostle. I'm a servant of God. He maybe names another guy or two. And then he gives a greeting to the church that he's writing to. But with Romans, he puts a little parenthesis before he gives the greeting, which we will get to this morning, and I will pick up the pace a little bit, so don't get too nervous. But uh, before he gets to the greeting, he actually gives a parenthesis about the gospel, and this is why. He says in verse 1, another thing about himself, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. And now, for a few verses, he's going to talk about this beautiful gospel message and give us a little bit of an analysis of what the gospel is before he gets into the big analysis of what the gospel is in uh, the, the entirety of this letter. So here's a few things that we can learn about the gospel in the next few verses from the pen of Paul. First of all, notice who the author of the gospel is. He calls it the gospel of, not man. It's not the gospel of the church or human institution. He refers to it off the bat as, and in other places he'll say the gospel of Paul or according to Paul, but the originator, the author, the gospel of God, verse 1. I think that's very helpful for us to remember when it comes to the gospel message. We have to remember that this whole thing started with God. It all began with, with God. I think it's actually one of the things that's important about belief in the Trinity or the triunity of God, that God is one, but that, he's, that he is also three persons, eternally uh, you know, existent, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because there was perfect love between the triune Godhead for all of eternity past. But the gospel message is the explosion of his love to people. He looked out upon a lost and broken world and says, here's what I will do to provide salvation for you. Here's what I will do to make things right. This brokenness that you created, here's what I will do to make right all of this brokenness that you brought in as a result of your own sin. 
When I think that it's my message, when I think that it's the church's message, it makes it so much harder to declare with boldness or to want to share with other people. But when I understand that it's the gospel of God, that there is a God in heaven who obtained me or obtained you and now looks at other people and says, I want you to be a conduit for this message. And you understand it starts with him and it's flowing through you to others. It just makes evangelism evangelism a little more effective when we understand who the originator is of this message actually is. Now we go on in verse 2, and Paul says, which, concerning this gospel, so we learn a little more about the gospel, here's what it is, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So one thing you learn about the gospel is that when Jesus came onto the scene, it wasn't like this brand new, well, hold on a minute, there's the Old Testament, but now God is just saying, you know, that was the plan back then, but forget it. And now we're going to do a new thing. It was a new thing and a fresh thing. However, it had been, what does Paul say? Promised by the prophets. Promised by the prophets. Now certainly the Old Testament prophets, a lot of them really explicitly promised that Jesus was coming. They promised the gospel message, didn't they? Isaiah said things like in Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, that the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, God had said to the woman and the man that the devil or the serpent will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, uh, Speaking of in a prophecy concerning Jesus that he would be struck upon the cross of Christ and that the devil would strike him but that he would get the last laugh and crush the head of Satan there upon that cross. So the prophets, they promised it. But really the whole Old Testament was pointing forward to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we look at the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. You ever read some of those passages and you're just like, this is kind of weird kind of thing. And you're reading through them. Maybe you get to them in your Bible reading and you're like, okay, here we go, Leviticus. And uh, you're moving through it. I like Leviticus. I think there's some really neat things there. But one of the things that we sometimes say is, well, that was their way of being saved. You know, like we believe in the Lord, we believe in his blood, that he cleansed us, and that was their way of being saved. And I, and I would have to say, no, that's not, that was not their way of being saved. You know what their way of being saved was? Their way of being saved was being in slavery in Egypt, crying out to God, God sending a deliverer and a Passover, blood being placed upon the doorpost, the angel of death passing by them because they put the blood on their doorpost, leaving in the middle of the night, passing through the Red Sea, God closing the ocean or the Red Sea behind them and saying to them, you are now my people, come out from among them and serve me. The sacrificial system, what's God's way of saying, you're saved, you belong to me, but you got a lot of Egypt inside of you. And I want to get Egypt out of your heart. Here's a sacrificial system so that now you have an opportunity to confess sin, you have an opportunity to remember the blood, you have an opportunity to get right with me time and time again. You are saved by me, but you must be sanctified by me. And here's a process whereby you can go through uh, in order to be sanctified. So, but, but all of that, that whole sacrificial system, it all pointed forward to Jesus Christ. Amen? Here's a word that I like, though. I hope you saw this in verse 2. 
if I were just writing this on my, on my own, I'd probably say, you know, the, the prophets prophesied of his coming. But don't you love that he says, which he promised beforehand through the prophets? The word promise is bigger than prophecy. Uh, it includes prophecy, but it's like you have the heart of God saying, you're lost, you're broken, and I promise, I promise that I will do something to save you from this brokenness and from this hurt, the promise of God. Now, in verse 3 and 4, we learn who this gospel message is all about, who it's bound up in. It says in verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a very beautiful thing that Paul said there in verse 3 and 4. Very poetic. So poetic that some people think that it was an early church creed that Paul put into his gospel right off the bat in order to sort of approve the creed and say, yeah, that's the right way of saying things. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. In other words, he had the right human genealogy, the right relationships, David and Judah before David and Israel before Judah and Abraham before Israel, the right genealogy and also was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul seems to be highlighting in verse 3 and 4 is both the humanity of Jesus, verse 3, and the divinity of Jesus in verse 4. That's what it means when he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection. Now here's a question. How did that happen? Certainly it doesn't mean, or it can't mean, that when Jesus rose from the dead, the Father said, okay, cool, now you're my Son. It wasn't at the moment of his resurrection that he became the Son of God. No, he's always been the Son of God, amen? We actually learn in the book of Colossians that he was there at the moment of first creation, speaking creation into being. So he's always been the son of God, and in their minds, and this should be also the case in our minds, God the son. That's the way that they understood the term son of God. It means you are equal with God, you are the child of God, you are the son of God and God the son. So how did his resurrection sort of state with power that he was the Son of God? Do you remember what Jesus was crucified for? I know that on the cross, Pilate put an inscription above Jesus that said, the King of the Jews. And that really is technically why Pilate crucified Jesus. Because the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead, and they knew if we come up to Pilate and say, hey, we had a religious dispute with this guy, Pilate would laugh them out of the room and say, I don't care about your Bible disputes. Get out of here. So they had to come to him and say, this guy is making himself to be another king. And uh, you got a boss. His name's Caesar. And he's not going to like it if you let this king live. So you should kill this king. And so ultimately, that was Pilate's excuse for crucifying Christ, that he said he was the king of the Jews. But The religious leaders, that wasn't why they wanted Jesus dead. They asked him, interrogated him over and over again on that fateful night before he went to the cross. Are you the son of God? Are you the son of God? 
It is as you say. They tore their clothes. They said, it is blasphemy. In other words, they thought, you're making yourself out to be God if you're saying you're the Son of God. That is why Jesus was crucified, because he made himself to be divinity, divine. So, when he rose from the grave, it was like this divine seal of yes and amen to the statement that he had made that I'm the Son of God, I'm God the Son. Because had he made that claim, and God the Father says, no, you are not my Son, then the tomb would have remained sealed, and he would have remained in the grave. But because he came bursting out of that tomb, and the grave was then opened for them to see that he'd risen from it, uh, the the proclamation was he's the son of God. And it was just a very clear statement that he is who he says he is. But what we notice here is, notice that in verse 3, concerning his son. In other words, everything that we are going to get, everything that we're going to study throughout the whole book of Romans, the thing we need to understand is we don't get any of it without Jesus. We don't get any of it without Christ. In fact, if Jesus had not come, you know what the book of Romans would look like? I've been thinking about this. The book of Romans, if Jesus had never come, I mean, obviously, Paul would have never even wanted to write it. But had, had Jesus never come, you know what? All, all we would get is just portions of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. We'd get statements like this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We'd get Romans 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. We'd get Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we would get from the book of Romans. But because Jesus came, we get Romans 3, 24 and beyond. That there is redemption in Christ Jesus. So it's really all about Jesus Christ. And so we're going to study him and what he's done for you and for me. Paul also said of himself and about this gospel in verse 5, notice it, he said, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Paul says, you know, one thing the gospel gave me or made me was a messenger. And I think proper uh, reception of the gospel always sends us out. And in Paul's mind, he says, and it sends me out and us out to, notice it, verse 5, all the nations. All the nations. Now, when Paul said that, it's important to remember that was a big deal. Because he'd grown up in Judaism, which said, you want to know God? You need to become Jewish and convert to Judaism. But now he's a Christian apostle saying, you want to know God? Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sin and rose from the dead. Place your faith in him and keep your nationality, but come to know Christ and you will be saved. And I think that one thing that will happen to us, and I, I, I don't want to say that it's a small byproduct because maybe for some of you it will be a major thing that the Lord does in your heart during this time that we study the book of Romans. But one of the things that the doctrines found in the book of Romans will do to your heart is it will begin to eradicate prejudices and racism that exists sometimes that you don't even know exists inside of your heart. 
and because you come face to face with this beautiful gospel message, and it just starts changing the way that you see humanity. And so Paul here is saying, I'm sent out into all uh, the nations. Now in verse 6, he goes on, and he actually starts doing his greeting kind of thing where he greets the Roman church. So let's look at that and see what he says to these uh, Romans. He says, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now, we really don't know how the church in Rome started. When you read the book of Acts, you get to see the history of how a lot of churches did start, the church in Philippi, the church in Antioch, the church in Jerusalem, the church on Crete, you know, places like that. We've learned that in the New Testament, where, how these churches started. But we really don't know how the church in Rome began, which is interesting because obviously it was the Roman Empire. It's the most significant city uh, at, during Paul's day, but we really don't know how it began. We do know that Paul didn't start the church in Rome. At this point, they are there, and he has not yet been there. So we know that he didn't start it. Traditionally, there are some church traditions that say that Peter started the church in Rome, but frankly, that's heavier on tradition than uh, evidence. One thing that we do know is that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there are all these people from all over the world gathered together. Jesus had just gone back to heaven 10 days earlier. 120 believers are praying, and the Holy Spirit comes down on them. They start speaking in other languages that they don't naturally know, and a huge crowd of people gathers together, and they hear Peter preach the gospel message, and 3,000 people that heard that message gave their lives to Jesus in that day and in that moment. We know that, and we also know that some of the people that were there, according to Acts 2, were from Rome. So who started the church in Rome? I don't know. But who started the church in Rome? The Holy Spirit started the church in Rome. Probably had a bunch of people going back to Rome with this newfound gospel, and they began to share it with their friends and family, and it found apparently fertile soil in Rome because historians like Tacitus tell us that by A.D. 64, when Nero began to persecute the church in Rome, he called the church in Rome a massive multitude of people. And Paul wrote this letter, you know, five to eight years before that persecution began. So you can just imagine that the church had spread like wildfire in Rome and other believers had heard about it. And so Paul wanted to write to this group of believers. He says to them in verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Notice the way that Paul prayed. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. When you pray, you get an audience with God not because you're super faithful. You get an audience with God not because you say, hey, God, I, I went to church four Sundays in a row. Okay? You don't get that. <laughs> That's not why you get an audience with God. You get an audience with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. The position that is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
In other words, Paul just, he's like sitting there, probably in Corinth, that's the evidence, at least in, in Romans 15 and 16, it seems like he's writing from Corinth, and he's saying to them, hey, I know I'm not there with you, but I, we've all heard about you. We've heard about your faith, it's proclaimed through the whole world, and just the radical nature of your reception of the gospel. Now at this point, I want, I want to say something about the way that Paul viewed Rome and other cities in his personal advancement of the gospel. Paul seems to have always wanted to go to the cities. That's where he wanted to go. He wanted to go to the places that roads connected to and that many people were in. Why did he want to go to cities? Because he wanted to go to people, and there were lots of people there. He wanted to preach the gospel in places like that. But Paul understood that what was happening in the Roman church would reverberate through the whole world because it was Rome that they were operating in. And I think that's important to say because, I don't know, maybe you've noticed this, but it seems to me that there can be a tendency sometimes in our hearts to sometimes as Christians put down the city and almost to talk about Christianity and obedience to God and His Word and the Christian life as if it is something that is only conducive to a suburban lifestyle or a rural lifestyle. But the truth of the matter is that the gospel, I think, has its brightest colors and most beautiful contrast to a fallen and broken world when it's being lived out aggressively and faithfully by believers inside of the cities of the world. And for a person here on earth today who wants to see the gospel reverberate throughout the world, we have to have a willingness to bring the gospel into city centers, especially as we see the data that the percentage of people living in cities versus not living in cities is only increasing in the era in which we live. And with technology and all of that, that's only going to grow. So we got to have a thing within our hearts where we say, we want to see the gospel go into cities more and more and more because it can survive there, it can thrive there, and it will do a world of good there. Let's get out of our hearts the idea or the perspective of saying, oh, you know, we could never plant a church in a city. We could never bring the gospel to a city because cities are just crazy and there's no way that it could ever happen there. No, we should have an attitude and heart that says there's people. And when the gospel impacts a city, that church becomes an influential church. I haven't seen a whole lot of trends and all of that that have started in the farmland and made their way to the city, but I've seen plenty of trends and things that started in the city that made their way to the farmlands. And I'm hoping and praying more and more that radical, vibrant, healthy, gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, Bible-teaching churches will be found in cities so that it will spread throughout the world. Amen? And so Paul seems to have had that attitude. He was always looking for and wanting to go to the city, including Rome. For God is my witness, verse 9, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So Paul, as he's writing to them, he confesses, I, I've always wanted to go to Rome. And for Paul, he wasn't saying, 
I want to go to Rome so I could put on the little headsets and walk around and take the audio tour of the city. That's not why Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome so that he could, notice it, verse 11, impart some spiritual gift to the Roman church. How beautiful. I think an attitude that says, I want to give, is probably in one sense part of the major definition of what maturity is in the Christian life. But it actually leads to great joy and great blessing because it lifts the eyes off of the self and places it upon the Lord and upon others. Paul wanted to give. What did he want to give? Well, he says, I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. The question is, what does that mean? What does that mean? Is he saying, when I get there, I mean, I haven't been there, and and no apostles that I know of have been there, and so certainly you guys probably don't have any spiritual gifts. So when I get there, I'm going to be putting my hand on people's foreheads, left and right, and you will then receive spiritual gifts after I'm there. Is that what Paul is talking about? No, Paul is the guy who actually wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, he said, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts individually as he wills. All right, so he says that's the Holy Spirit's job. So I think when Paul says, I want to impart a spiritual gift, he's just saying, I got some spiritual goods that I'd like to give you. There's some preaching I'd like to give you. There's some sermons I'd like to give you. There's some discipleship I'd like to give you. I can't wait to get to Rome so that I can give you this message and bless you, in a sense, in a spiritual way. But he goes on to say in verse 12, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. It's almost like he gets there and he's thinking, I can't wait to get there. I want to get there. I want to bless you. And then he says, oh, you know, but when I'm blessing you, you're going to be blessing me. And there will be a mutual encouragement of each other's faith. He says in verse 12, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, verse 13, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I don't know if you know this about Paul in his life, but he served the Lord for a long time. He probably died at about 60 years of age and probably gave his life to the Lord uh, around 30 years of age. He had about 30 years of serving Jesus really hard, really going for it. But... He had a dream in his life to go to Rome and to preach. It's not just found here. It's also found in the book of Acts. But he had another city he wanted to go to first, and it was the city of Jerusalem. And when you read the book of Acts, you read about this time that he did finally get to Jerusalem. And I'm sure in his mind's eye, he thought, "Uh, you know, I'm a former Pharisee, probably was part of the Sanhedrin, the governing body there in Israel. And he probably thought to himself, when I get there, And when I preach, there's going to be a revival. I'm going to connect the dots for people. I'm going to help them see that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. And my people, the people of Israel, they're going to come to know the Lord. But actually what happened was the exact opposite. He had a captive audience. He was held there, had a captive audience actually at the Temple Mount. But when he said, and Jesus called me to go to the Gentiles, That was the forbidden word in their minds. And they began to throw dust in the air and tear their garments. And Paul was then taken into custody by the Roman government. 
And I'm sure at that moment, there was probably a lot of sorrow in Paul's heart. Have you ever had something that for a long time you dreamed of, you thought of, the moment came, and it just didn't go the way that you thought that it was supposed to go? But Jesus in that moment appeared to Paul and spoke to his heart and said, Paul, you've done well in preaching the gospel here in Jerusalem, and you must also preach in Rome. And as a prisoner, Paul would eventually appeal to Caesar, and in chains he would be brought to Rome where he would preach the gospel as a prisoner. So sometimes when you have a vision of what the Lord wants to do in your life, sometimes it's not going to come to pass in the way that you think it's going to come to pass. I'm sure he wanted to get to Rome as a free man, not as a man in chains, but he got there. But here, he still hadn't been there, and he says, Lord, I want to go. I want to preach the gospel in Rome. I want to give them a spiritual gift. And he says, notice in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That phrase is actually very helpful to us because notice what Paul says. To a group of Christians in Rome, he says, I can't wait to preach the gospel not to your community, not to your friends and family who don't know the Lord, But I can't wait to preach the gospel to you. That's really cool for us to know because it helps us understand that the gospel is more than the ABCs of the Christian faith, but that it's the A to Z of the Christian faith and that we should continually have it preached and discover it and learn the doctrines found within it. Notice, though, as we close this, a little phrase that he says in verse 14, I am under obligation. I am under obligation to all these different people, to preach the gospel. I'm under obligation. There are two ways to get in debt. One way is for someone to loan you something and you are now in their debt. You owe them. That is not the kind of debt that Paul felt before the Lord, that the Lord gave me something and now I have to earn what he gave to me. It wasn't actually a gift. It's something that he put into my care, and now I have to earn it from him. It wasn't that kind of debt in Paul's mind. There's a second kind of debt. There's a kind of debt if somebody went to you and said, here, here's $1,000. I want you to give this $1,000 to my friend when they show up. I can't meet with them, but here it is. You transfer it to them. Now you're in the debt of the person who gave it to you to do the thing they asked you to do, And you're in the debt of the person who is supposed to receive that $1,000. That's how Paul felt about the gospel. I am in debt to all these people, Greeks and barbarians, Jews and free. I'm in debt to everyone here on earth because God gave it to me so that I could give it uh, to them. And so he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also. And so that's what we have here in the book of Romans. Paul is going to preach the gospel, and he's going to do it by writing it down for you and me to discover and love together. So we did 15 verses today. Next week, we'll do two verses as we look at the mission statement uh, of this letter. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless us now because we're going to close our service by doing something very appropriate. We're going to take communion. So if you're a Christian this morning, a believer, 
you've been born again, this is for you to remember the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus that cleansed you and saved you. So as the elements come by, just collect them and hold them and we'll partake together as one family in uh, just a few minutes. So Lord, we, we do come before you ten, uh, this morning and we're so thankful, Lord, for what you have given to us in this glorious gospel message. And Lord, we feel like we just barely know what it is that you have for us. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us. That as we move through it, Lord, that our eyes would be open. We sang that earlier, Lord. And I pray that it would occur in our lives. That you'd open our eyes like like Paul prayed for the Ephesians, Lord, that our eyes would be open and know the length and width and depth and height of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Help us to see it, Lord. Help us to know it. Fill our hearts, fill our minds, Lord, with this beautiful truth and reality. And change us, Lord, from within. We bring, Lord, so many past experiences and so many things that are either part of our nature or have just kind of been putting us over time that we want to bring to the cross of Christ, to have changed and transformed, sanctified, Lord, that we might grow more and more into the image of Christ Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to this glorious gospel message, Lord, over the next weeks and months together, Lord, as a church. So we thank you, Lord. And now as we partake of communion, we ask that you'd meet us here in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's sing together.